movie. All right. Hey, that's all we got. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles, please, to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. Gospel of John 1, verse 14. Hey, uh, while you find that, uh, who went on the ladies' retreat? That's it? A couple of gals? What did you other guys do? Uh, anyway, I heard it was great. I heard it was great. Good to have you. All right. Um, John 1, verse 14. This is God's word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if anybody watches uh, Bear Grylls shows. Anybody seen Bear Grylls uh, jumping around the rocks and stuff like that? You know who Bear Grylls is? He was like a Russian Navy SEAL kind of guy. And uh, he does a lot of, uh, you know, adventure hiking and stuff like that. But he, he'll take celebrities with him. And uh, he's had the series called Running Wild with Bear Grylls. And he's got all these just different kinds of celebrities and football players and actresses and singers and stuff. And he takes them, I don't know how they, I don't know how they're, you know, their management companies and stuff sign off on the danger, but he takes them all over the place. And one of the things he does, he does a couple things. He makes them eat something disgusting at some point. Like they have no food. They're just like killing something or finding something or cooking something or stabbing something and they roast it in the fire. And so that's always fun to watch these celebrities get out of their insulated worlds and, you know, eat something weird. That's fun. And then the other thing that he tends to do is there's some kind of either climbing up a rock or down a rock and the rope's really skinny. You know, it's one of these high, uh, you know, you know, high uh, tech kind of ropes and all that stuff. But I mean, you get like these, like Shaq was on it. I mean, Shaq's looking at the skinny rope going, man, I'm 350 pounds. Is that thing going to hold me? And uh, the other thing that Bear, Bear Grylls will do is when they have to rappel down some mountain is he'll tie that rope off on some little tiny tree. Or I've seen him do a, a, like a little rock formation like this big. You're like, seriously, dude? That's 300 feet. And then the worst one I ever saw was a clump of dirt. It was like in Wales or something. There was a clump of dirt he puts the rope around the clump of dirt, and he's like, this is going to hold the two of us. And they have to go down this thing, being held by this clump of dirt. Well, we sensible, reasonable humans don't want our hope on some skinny rope. It's scary looking. And we sensible, reasonable humans don't want our rope tied off on something that looks small or that it's not going to hold us. Um, we um, sensible humans uh, don't want to be hooked to anything that's weak. And uh, that goes for our spirituality too, doesn't it? I mean, when you think about it, don't you want your rope hooked to something that's going to hold? Uh, let me put it to you this way. Uh, would you rather be sure of your eternity in Jesus Christ? Or would you rather guess uh, as to uh, your eternity uh, with God that you're going to be okay? What would you rather be, sure? Or would you rather guess? Um, and yet when people think of... Um, a higher power of some sort, um, rather than think of something that they can really hook to, um, they tend to let it be lost in mystery. It's kind of like it's been submerged in molasses and it's floating there and it's hard to understand and it's hard to get to. And I think that if it remains mysterious and ungraspable, 
okay, of people's idea of spirituality, whatever that is, remains unreachable and ungraspable. It also lets them off the hook. They don't have to be accountable to it. It remains a mystery, so they kind of just go, well, you know, all that religion and the, the God factor and all that stuff, um, they don't have to be accountable to it. Well, there is good news, friends, on this page of the Bible, and I will summarize it this way. You have an actual, not conceptual savior. And that might seem like an oddly put point to you, but the Christian faith, friends, and, and uh, um, the, the savior of that people is unique among world religions. Um, again, do you want to be sure you're okay with God for all eternity? Or do you want to guess that you're okay with God for all eternity? Um, if you would, keep your finger where you are, but flip ahead to 1 John. It's almost at the end of the Bible. Uh, Hebrews, James, Peter, John. Um, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says this. I write these things to you. Now, the, the guy writing is the same Apostle John who wrote the gospel. Same guy, only this is his, his, his uh, email, his uh, epistle to be distributed to other people, okay? Um, this is his post. Uh, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, isn't that a wonderful thought, that you might know that you have eternal life, that you might know you're okay with God. That's awesome. How, though? How are we supposed to know that we have eternal life? What are we supposed to believe? Well, back up a few verses in that same chapter. Look at uh, midway through verse 9. This is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. Here it is. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he, does not, he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. And then he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. All right, so that's a very clear statement about, about Jesus' exclusivity, isn't it? There's one way unto this God per the, this book. You either throw out this whole book or you believe what I just read. Now, the world is in the guessing business. Um, if you take Hinduism, uh, you might say, well, I hope, uh, I'm betting on that uh, of, the, of the couple hundred thousand uh, Hindu gods that the, the ones I've picked are going to be the right ones that are going to work. You can, you can guess that way. Or you might say in Buddhism, uh, you say, I hope my karma's good enough. Uh, I hope I haven't uh, like messed it up and, and messed up a path to nirvana or whatever. Um, uh, but it, it all comes back to you and your performance again. How about universalism? Uh, I hope I'm a good enough person. I, I hope I get in. Uh, I hope that the path out of many paths that I've chosen up the mountain is going to be a valid path. Guessing. Um, how about um, the Muslim faith? I hope the scales balance out. I hope the scales balance out. And, uh, and, uh, and well, actually, unless you become a martyr, if you become a martyr, you're guaranteed. So why doesn't everybody just become a martyr? That's what I want to know. If being a martyr is the guarantee in, the, in why not become a martyr? But even a lack of belief is a belief system. And that drives people with a lack of, with a, out of belief system crazy. Atheists don't like to be called uh, a belief system or a religion. It drives them absolutely nuts. But um, 
it is a belief system, isn't it? I believe in science. I believe in that which can be verified. I, I'm not going to look at it unless it's got a nice clean sum. Um, uh, and, and yet, how the heck do you do with that with matters of the soul? How do you do that with issues like social justice and values and morals if, if everything's, everything's reduced to, um, to pure logic? I mean, how do you account for the spiritual aspect of humanity, which we all feel? Uh, how, do you, how do you account for uh, ultimate questions, which we all ask? Groanings that we feel, groanings from eternity, echoes from eternity. How do you account for those kinds of things in the human experience? Well, the great news, friends, is that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have an historical Savior. And if you've been with me for any length of time, you've heard me say those words before, that we have an historical Savior. And I'm not sure that that resonates the way that it's supposed to. I think people go, oh, yeah, whatever, an historical Savior, blah, 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 preacher talk or whatever. But having an historical Savior is a giant thing. It's a giant theological thing. It's a giant personal religious thing. Uh, because, now, and by the way, it's not to say that we don't exercise faith. We do. Um, we believe in a God that we can't see. We believe in a Savior who lived 2,000 years ago. We believe in a religious system, uh, a salvation that was, uh, at least in its kernel form, established thousands of years ago. I mean, we have, to, we have to exercise faith. We have to believe that which we can't see. However, when I say we have an historical Savior, what I mean is we have an actual personal, physical savior who lived on this earth. He walked on this earth. He lived on this earth. He spoke a certain language. He lived within a certain culture. He was born to certain parents. He had friendships. He had relationships. He had a family tree. He lived under verifiable leadership of the day. And the Bible invites scrutiny. You know, you, you flip through the Old Testament, you read these like land allotments and, and um, and uh, who's the king, and who's, who begot, who begot, and you've got genealogies and stuff. Why does the Bible put that in there? Because it's exhilarating reading? Um, no, but yes. Um, it puts it in there because it invites scrutiny. The Bible's not saying, this is, like, this is a lot like Zeus. This is a lot like a Hindu god. No, it's not that. The Bible is saying, check it. This is anchored in history. God's unfolding redemption fits into human history, and we have an historical savior. Um, now, let me read a good quote to you uh, by this, this guy. This guy quotes another guy uh, named Leon Morris, and um, it's just a good, yeah. Um, check it. We tend to think, <clears throat> oh, yeah, yeah, here it is. He preached, there are two great quotes on here. Um, Jesus, his earthly, his earthly ministry, <clears throat> he preached to a few people in an outlying province of an ancient, long-since-vanished empire. Even there, he was not often in the capital, the center of affairs, but in a remote country area. He taught a few people, gathered a few disciples, did an uncertain number of miracles, aroused a great number of enemies, was betrayed by one close follower and disowned by another, and died on a cross. Where is the glory in that, asks Leon Morris. Uh, he's got a good answer for it later. But, but, but that's, that, you know, we, we believe in a homeless guy who was murdered. That's who we believe in. That's who we're staking our whole eternity on, friends. And that, that takes a big exercise of faith, right? It does. But 
We have an historical savior. And we'll, we'll talk more about glory on the next point. But the reason I read that to you is that I want you to see that Jesus was human like us. Jesus entered this world. He walked on this earth. His feet got dusty. His body got weary. His stomach rumbled with hunger. He knew betrayal. He knew friendship. He knew relationship. He knew love. He knew, he knew uh, bitter sadness. He knew anguish. He was, he was really human. He was an historical savior. And the point in all that is this, how personal this savior is. Okay, it's not just some salvation from afar, a wand is waved and it's all impersonal. No, it's this savior who has gotten messy with us. He's taken upon himself a human nature and lived within the confines of history like us, which brings us to our first point. Emmanuel, God with us, God tabernacling with us. All right, that's our first point, God tabernacling with us. Now, that might sound strange that God tabernacles with us. Um, I bet you if I said who's heard that expression before, I bet you 14 hands would go up. Uh, It's strange, God tabernacling with us, but that really is the idea. It's a rich allusion to the coming day of the Messiah and a treasured thing for Christ followers now, all right, that that Jesus would tabernacle with us. Now, the first few uh, verses of the book of John, uh, as I told you, it's a different kind of gospel. It's focused on Jesus' divinity. Uh, Right out of the gate, John wants us to see that Jesus was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. In case there's any confusion about Jesus being God, actually being divinity, actually being God, not someone who was made, not, it says that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. That is Jesus creator with divine fiat. That is a distinct claim of Jesus' divinity in eternity before he came to this earth. Now, we're shown the how of it. How does Jesus come into the light? How does this light come into darkness, the darkness of men? Um, In verse 14, it says um, uh, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, that's a reference to what? Jesus being born into this world, and, uh, and why not? I mean, it's right at the front of John's gospel. Uh, nativity accounts are at the front of the other gospels. Uh, but it's important for us to remember that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, who was born into this world, who took flesh upon himself, was from eternity. He was God. He was with God. He was God. He was the creating God. God the Son has always been the Son of God. All right, let me show you one more cool thing, and that's in Exodus. If you would flip to Exodus 40. Genesis, Exodus, second book. Exodus 40. And this is a, uh, it's kind of cool. This is the end of the book of Exodus. um, And it talks about the tabernacle. Okay, so you know that the temple, when David uh, established his kingdom and built a permanent structure, that was the temple, all right? The, the former version of the temple was a big tent, and I don't mean a Coleman tent with fiberglass poles, but I mean like a big honking heavy tent with big wooden you know, poles and everything. Um, the tabernacle was a, was a mobile version of, of the temple, all right? So here's a description of what it was that the tabernacle was in the midst of God's people, Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. 
But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out, for, uh, set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Did you know that? That uh, when in the wilderness wanderings, that, that Israel was led by God, and when God would move, they would move, and when God would stay, they would stay. But when God would stay, and his presence would, would be over and in and through that tabernacle, they could see it. Did you know that, uh, uh, the, that it was fire in it by night, and uh, they could, it was in the, the vision of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys? You can see then how profound a thing it would be for um, a gospel writer to say, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The idea is that he tabernacled among us. Can you imagine how exciting that would be to go, wow, wait a minute, this savior tabernacled with us. He, he was in our midst. This is divinity in the midst of human beings. Um, this, is, this is God become flesh. This is Emmanuel, uh, God with us. And that's, that's two major applications on that. Jesus' advent into this world, it is God with us truly, God's glory with us. Um, and then the other important thing to see is that you've got this comparison of the church and Israel. And, um, you know, Dr. Young will tell you, if you've taken his, uh, his last couple of GGs, uh, that Israel and the church are one. And uh, I've, got a, I've got a version of that quote, too. It goes like this. Israel and the church are one. That's my own spin on it. Israel and the church are one. Um, but the most personal application is that Jesus tented with us. Um, he tabernacles with us. He took on a flesh, a human nature, so that he would know and perfectly represent us uh, in salvation. Um, he was all that we could never be in our sin. He lived a perfectly lived human life. This Savior who came from glory took upon himself a human nature and tabernacled with us. All right, our second point, glory and glory. Um, I kind of like that most translations have glory, comma, glory. Some aren't exactly like that, but it says, and the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, comma, glory, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So glory, and then there's a description of it. Now, what is this glory? Well, doxa means radiance um, or brightness, and it's long been uh, associated with uh, uh, God's glory, exposure to it, from Moses to the transfiguration to anyone who had faced an angel, saw glory. Um, But that was another function of the tabernacle, was that it was in the center of the people. Um, whenever they would encamp, God's glory was in the center of the people and they would camp around it and God's presence would manifest itself and there was a kind of glory that would be around it, this Shekinah glory, this radiant glory. So the word becomes flesh, dwells among us. We've seen his glory. What kind of glory? Glory as of only the son from the father, full of grace and truth. It is a divine glory. Again, uh, the gospel writer speaking of Jesus' divinity. There you have it. you know, in Colossians 2, um, it says, uh, I'm going to show you something in a second, but in Colossians 2, it says, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's quite a statement of divinity. And how about this from Hebrews 1? You know, we, we studied it together. We studied it with Dr. Young too, but listen to this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, 
He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. There you have, again, statement of Jesus, not only in divine, but at the, at the start of creation, making things, not made, making things, all right? And here's what it goes on to say. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What a picture of this, this Savior. Uh, what a thing that he would have come to earth. Um, and listen, um, th- this, uh, the disciples, think about it. If we, if we apply this to our lives, the disciples, what would they have witnessed in Jesus? You know, he doesn't, uh, uh, you know, I know paintings have, you know, halos on Jesus' head. He wasn't glowing. Um, and even, you know, we sing, oh, I'm straying from my notes a little bit, but we just came out of Christmas. And there are certain things that I just can't do with certain Christmas songs. Um, for instance, um, God rest ye merry gentlemen. I think I've told you this. God rest ye very merry gentlemen has four verses. Two are terrible. Um, and so they've been rewritten a million times. And I've rewritten them a couple of times. And we sing some versions that I've rewritten. Because it's like I'm sick of singing about Satan. Every verse is about Satan's power, Satan's power, Satan's power. He's a loser. You know, let's celebrate, the, let's celebrate the inverse, the Savior's win, you know? Anyway, but there's another one. Um, the little Lord Jesus, nah, 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 nah. no crying he makes. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed that, but you have never sung that at this church. Do you ever notice that? You sing away in a manger, but you don't sing no crying he makes. You know why? Um, the older I get, the more I think that's abject heresy. I know it's a sweet thought. And I know that when a, when a kid is, uh, you know, 13 months old, they, they've learned how to manipulate their cry. Eh, get over here. Ah, look what I did. I mean, you can already tell they're already little liars, right? But laying in that crib, would it have been a sin for Jesus to cry? Of course not. He's a baby. I mean, you take away a, cry, a baby crying and you're taking away, the, taking away his humanity. All right? I, 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 I hate that verse. Um, so we don't sing it. But uh, one, th- one thing we do, though, is um, radiant beams from thy holy face in silent night. Now, we know that Jesus wasn't radioactive, but I think I, th- I can get away with that because I think it's poetic license. I think, I think we, th- we think about this, this beautiful child over whom our spirits rejoice and and. and glow over his radiance. And, and I think that's poetic license. But friends, Jesus wasn't glowing. He didn't have a halo on his head, and certainly his mother didn't either. Um, what would the disciples have witnessed? What would show them glory, God's glory? He's not glowing. What would show him the glory? The, the, what would show him the glory is this. This is from a, a good commentator. He said, the progressive unfolding of Jesus' prophetic self-revelation. In other words, the disciples... Just watched him live. And can you imagine what it would be like to be around a sinless human being? I mean, never some kind of weird uh, passive-aggressive, you know, rumblings and and, uh, never flying off the handle and never selfish and never deceitful and and, uh, (laughs) never, never mentally off 
off mark, you know? Can you imagine what it would like to have watched a, a, a sinless person? Well, that's what the disciples looked. That was Jesus revealing God's glory in a perfectly lived human life. Um, now, friends, the way that applies to you is this. God's in the business of doing that with you. God's in the business of making you more like Jesus Christ, and it's called a, a sanctification. God sets you apart, and then God continues to work in you to make you more like Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, you might go, but am I more like Christ? I mean, I, I, if you're like me, you struggle with the same things you struggled with 10 and 20 and 30 years ago, the same propensities. And you go, but am I really, am I really more like Christ? I mean, I, sometimes I wonder if I'm just not stuck in the same old Jim Umloff. Do you, do you ever feel like that? Well, let me ask you some questions. Do you feel mortality more deeply than you used to? I mean, you look around this world and do you feel mortality more deeply than you used to? Um, when you look around this world, do you see the brokenness of the world more clearly? Do you? Do you? Do you? Do you? you look around and you go, oh man, this world is broken. Oh, you know, I prayed in the car uh, yesterday. I, I said, Lord, help us. Help me help us. Help poor humanity. Poor, broken, limping, hurting, confused, um, cloudy humanity. Help us, God. Do you, do you feel that? How about this? Do you see the beauty of God's more holiness more intensely? Do you? Do you love God's law more? Do you? Well, that is God working in your life. That is God sanctifying you. Um, and um, it, it's, it's, it's incremental, I understand, and I, I know that we still struggle uh, but do you, do you weep more over sin? Um, even though you're flawed, do you have a more Christ-like tenderness? Do you have a greater uh, hunger and interest in, in holy things? Do you? That is God working in your life. That is God sanctifying you. All right. Um, let's go to our last point. Both grace and truth, full of grace and truth, both of them. Um, let's go to our passage here. It says, um, the word became flesh dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of only only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Question, why those two words? Why does it say goodness and love? Why does it say holiness? I mean, that would be a, that would be a big one. Why does it say full of grace and truth? Well, um, first of all, they are ideas that are profoundly connected, grace and truth, okay? Um, grace um, is not needed if Truth isn't there. Um, and the idea of truth is this, that God views his creation forensically. You know, like you watch these uh, CSI and NCIS and all that, they have forensic data to try to solve the crime. All right, they want to piece together everything. They don't just go, we well, think that guy's guilty. I don't know. Let's try him. Let's see. Let's, let's just see if it, the, the thing sticks. They have to have evidence, and they're looking for meticulous evidence. That's the idea of truth, friends. God judges in truth. That, that's, that's a problem for a sinner if God judges in truth because he uncovers everything and not, not your little standards or my little standards, but his standards, his holy standards. Um, you know, God says, to, God says uh, let, let's go down and see what they're doing down there. Well, God doesn't need to come down and see in Genesis what the people are doing, but the Bible puts it that way so that we might know that God judges in righteousness. God judges um, forensically in truth. Well, Truth must accuse. Truth analyzes against law, doesn't it? That's a problem for a sinner. Uh, grace 
has to be applied then um, uh, if, if God judges so acutely. Now, friends, what was in the ark? Speaking of the tabernacle again. Speaking of the tabernacle in the presence of the people. What was inside the ark? Do you know? Aaron's rod that budded. What else? Jarmana. And what else? Ten Commandments. Now think about that. God's law. God's truth is tabernacling in the midst of the people. And then uh, they're having to bring blood into the tabernacle. And that's supposed to communicate something. I know it's weird for us because we don't, we didn't grow up on a farm and kill chickens and pigs, okay? I know it's weird for us to think we haven't stabbed an animal and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, think about that picture uh, over, over centuries. God's law in the midst of the people and blood being brought in. God judges in righteousness and truth, and all of a sudden, grace must be applied to be okay in God's presence. Um, and I'll tell you this too. When, when Moses once asked to see God's face, what did God say? You cannot see my face and live. What happens here? The word becomes flesh dwelled among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We get to see. You know, uh, you've heard me criticize uh, Christian songs um, many a time, I know. But uh, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but grace rhymes with place. And place and grace rhyme with face. So there are so many Christian songs out there that have grace, blah, 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 place, blah, 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 face. Yeah, they're really clever rhymes. And uh, consequently, this weird theology has grown up about this place. Oh, to be in this place. I just love this place. This place has all these people in this place. And here we are, Lord, in this place, this special place. That, that can turn into a weird theology really fast. Unless it is, oh God, you're covenantal in your promises and you've gathered together yourself a worshiping people. You will be our God and we will be your people. If that's, meant, if that's what's meant by, oh, this place, then rock on. But if it's just, oh, I love this building. Oh, what a wonderful building building you've made. It's full of all these smoke machines and lights. It's wonderful, this place. And then the other weird theology that builds up is about face. Oh, I just want to touch your face. I want your face. I want to see it. I want it right here. We all want to seek it. We want to love it. We want your face, your face, your face, your face. What does it mean to seek, to seek God's face? We sing it all the time in contemporary Christian songs. Well, how about this? Moses says, I want to see you, uh, and I want to see your face, and, and, and the God, the Holy One, says, no, 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 no. No one can see me and live, and yet God sends the living word who takes upon himself a human nature. Now what do we see? God. We see the face of God in Jesus. So I don't think we need to be, oh, the face, eh, turn it into some kind of like, oh, crazy Whole Foods vitamin department kind of religion. <laughs> Rather, friends, we have Jesus in our midst, God with us, the Savior, tabernacling in the midst of the people. Oh, yes, it's a wonderful place. You know why? Because God's redeemed people are gathered there. Uh, yes, uh, God's face should be sought. Where do we seek it? Where do we see it? In the Christ who is sent. And of course, 
the application for us in this, in this life is where does the world see Jesus Christ? Where do they see him? They see him reflected in us. We are ambassadors for the Lord in this life, and they're supposed to see something weird about us. Weird. Like, like we, we, uh, we love to worship this God, and we love to sacrifice for this God, and we love to be with the brethren uh, who also love this Christ, and, and we love to put ourselves second. We like to take our priorities and put them behind us, and we love to be under the authority of this book. That is weird, 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 and that's what it means to be an ambassador for Christ in this life. All right, last thing, and I'll close up. You know, uh, on ahead in chapter 12, Jesus says this, that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. If you read the other Gospels, you'll see time after time, people will try to get Jesus. Uh, They might try to kill him. They might try to propel him forward. They might try to advance his ministry for him. Um, And uh, he says, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Well, in the Gospel of John, um, early on, he starts talking about his time having come. And uh, he says this in, in 1223, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The time has come. What does he mean, though? Does he mean the time has come for the Son of Man to have parades? Uh, to have accolades? No. You know what it meant? When Jesus said the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, he did not mean parades. He meant crucified. In the mind of Christ, to be glorified was to be crucified to carry out God's will perfectly as God the Father designed it. Um, it was Jesus submitting to crucifixion. Uh, here's how that plays for you, friends. Um, the key for a sinful human being is to have an eligible representative. You gotta have a representative that's, that's legit. And there's only one. Uh, every single person in this room is guilty, 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 guilty of breaking God's law. And um, if you ever doubt it, then just ask yourself, have I ever felt shame? Oh, yeah, the culture impressed it upon me. Cultures come and go, man. Cultures, they have their own mores. They, they come and they disappear. They're different from place to place to place. Family to family, family. We all have different cultures. If the culture is the, is the line of what's right and wrong, well, then you've got one undulating right and wrong line. But if God is the, 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 if God is the constant, then we've got a real big problem as sinners. So we need someone eligible. It is the one who lived the perfectly lived human life, who, who lived righteously and was able to say, I never sinned once. Never gave in once, not once. I'm eligible. I'll take the sin debt. I'll become accursed so that the accursed can be made righteous. It's, it's this great transaction. It's this great um, cosmic trade that is made on the cross. That's what Jesus came to do. Not just to be a nice guy on, uh, on a cross who did something sacrificial, not just to be a teacher, not just to be caught up in some kind of religious movement, um, but he came, born into this world, to die, to tabernacle among us, righteously, so that he could be the sacrifice himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such profound and wonderful things, and I I just pray that if I've been too verbose or dispassionate, um, forgive me. Um, Let let that slide off these people. Um, Rather, Lord, might you exhilarate them with the truth of the gospel, 
but you did not give up on this broken, flawed, hurting, crying out creation, but rather sent your own word to be in our midst, to tabernacle among us, to live a perfect life so that he could lay it down so that we might live. Thank you for that reality, Lord. I pray that you'll draw people unto yourself in your own way, in your own time, and personally, for we pray it in the name of our person.